Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper Sunday, June 2nd, 2019. We are back from Greenville, yeah. South Carolina. Yes, we're, we're back home. So before, uh, we did the podcast last week before the big event of our weekend, the wedding right. of uh, Elena and Brendan. And uh, it was a great wedding. It was lovely. It was beautiful. It was within walking distance. So that was nice. Yeah, because it was right. 95 degrees. It's, yeah. Yes, it was within walking distance. It was very nice. It was very pleasant. Greenville's very impressive. The wedding was very nice. The band was good. Uh, you were able to keep up with me on the dance floor, which is always good. And right, we got uh, everybody into the act. Exactly. Even my mother yes. was out there. On the rollator, dancing <laughs> right. away as best one can open, in a rollator. Right. Uh, so uh, let's face know. it, there was an open bar. It was uh, it was something. It was spirited. Yes. So kudos to Elena and Brendan for pulling that off. Yes. And uh, you know, kudos to Bryce and for paying for it. Well, you know, with, we, we with others, I guess we don't know who paid for it. We don't know who. Paid for, for all we know, nobody but, paid for it, and there's a legal issue there. Okay. Um, and then uh, we had uh, part of another day in Greenville. We were there long enough to actually go to the Maple Street Biscuit Company. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we had some excellent biscuits. Yeah, so that's what, you know, I should say Granger's with us, and he's, he's going to jump in on the basketball later, unless he has something to say even before that. But he missed out on this. So this was a big biscuit place, which we found out by accident. We were checking out Hampson, who chats up everybody, Talks to the guy who has our car. Uh, Gee, where would you go for biscuits? He said. No, well, I did not even say that. What did you say? I said, please bring up the car. We're going to run next door and uh, grab some breakfast sandwiches. Right. I never mentioned biscuits. Yeah. Well, somehow the way the conversation morphed was he was saying before you knew it, you know, the food. That's okay. The food of the hotel where I work is okay, but the place that you want to get breakfast. Is uh, was it Maple Street Biscuit Ma- Company? Which, it's just a couple blocks away. Which it was correct. So it, the funny thing about that, it, well, we could go on forever about this place. Big line, everyone's uh, eager to get their biscuits and whatever. Huge place with open places to sit, and they have all these fantastic breakfast combinations. And it, and it wasn't the food was great, and the way they uh, <laughs> they assign numbers, whatever, to so you know to pick up your order as opposed to saying your number eleven, you give them the school from which you graduated and the year you graduated. And in that crowd, it was often the high school. So people were saying like Franklin High, 2014. No, it, no, it was and mostly Clemson. It was, there was a lot of Clemson. Okay. whatever. So we came in with, uh, I came in with Princeton 75. Now Princeton didn't throw them so much, but they, they couldn't come up with, they couldn't really deal with 75. They used 79, I think on the theory that no one who was so old that they graduated in 1975 would be able to get their own biscuits. So, what we you're were, saying is yes. you were flattered that they thought you were in the class of 79. Something like that. Flattered but not surprised. But we enjoyed the biscuits a great deal. Uh, so we had a great time. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's what you go to Greenville for is biscuits. That's right. Among other things. Right. So we were not disappointed. So, so we're in a traveling most. We're going to start with giving you a little uh, traveling insight based on what people are writing about in the newspaper. Ms. Granger, on top of the travel situation. Yeah. Um, so, uh, in the travel section of the New York Times, uh, nice uh, story about uh, um, skipping the Chateau at Versailles. 
uh, by Susan Dominus, who was in France with her 12-year-old son. Uh, she goes on the uh, Versailles website, and it has a travel alert. And it's not that there's a bomb threat or anything. It's that it's going to be super crowded. And I think it was the website itself recommends maybe you just want to rent a bike and tool around the beautiful grounds. And so, in fact, that's what uh, the author and her son do. Uh, you can There are various gates to the grounds, and uh, you can rent bicycles. And they did, and they just tooled around. Hmm. They had a great time. And I guess they felt they didn't miss much. So for, the, you know... The rest of their visit in France, they end up renting bikes a lot yeah. and uh, making bike tours, which, yes, we've always believed that. You you actually end up seeing more often on a bike ride okay. than on a tour of a historic yes, site. You're better off on the bike than stuck in a museum is what I always say. But, right. yes. but, but actually, uh, to be honest, uh, on one of our bike uh, tours... Another couple told us about a ba great bike tour they did in Versailles. around Versailles, yeah. and uh, it was an organized tour, and uh, they had a nice uh, picnic lunch or something, and they got a private tour. Well, that's that's Private excellent. tour is often better, because they might speak English, Yeah, and uh, you, you know they might be more responsive might, to what I, you're actually interested I, in. I, I bet you pay for that, though. I mean, that oh, must... you do pay for that. Yeah. But they said it was a great, it was a fun thing to do. Yeah. So uh, if I go back to Versailles again, I might do something like that. All right, I'm I'm warned. I'm forewarned. So they're also <laughs> uh, and uh, so and back to the uh, bicycle theme. Yeah. Uh, the 36 hours in X City, X, which the Times does on a regular a, basis. Right, that it's a regular feature. The city was. Bend, Oregon. Where we've been. And you know, it's funny, before we even start, I thought everyone knew about Bend. And I mentioned Bend once in a while to my colleagues at work. And I almost get blank stares all the time, which I surprised me. I think it's a me. certain demographic. Is that it? Which New York lawyers may not regularly fall into. I guess. I mean, because to me. It's a really outdoorsy place. Because if you're on a bike trip anywhere and someone says Bend, Everyone knows what you're talking right, about. Right, yeah. And in fact, they... Um, I should say it's in Oregon. The article yeah. mentions yeah. that uh, Bend is so popular that the locals wear a bumper sticker that says, Bend sucks, don't move here. Right. Which Because um, they don't want you, but right. it doesn't the suck. Prices are going up, you know, it, it, rentals it, are going up. It's a beautiful place. Although, yeah. on one of our, on the bike tour we went on, yeah. we, um, we were ta chatting up one of the guides, and he was about to invest yeah. in a property yeah. in Bend. For B&B. So he could rent it out. Yeah, so let me Airbnb. just say before we go on with that, that there's a reason that these guys are bike guides. They're not, you know, necessarily the financial <laughs> wizards. I mean, but that's fine. But but Bend is uh, beautiful, and the Times confirms that. And not only Bend, but in the neighboring town, Sisters, which we spent a fair bit of time in on this bike trip. Yeah. Um, actually, they mention uh, a place that we stayed on the bike trip called Five Pine. That's in Sisters. And it had, yeah, yeah in Sisters, Oregon, which is right yeah. next to right. Bend. And uh, they had wonderful craftsman-style yeah. cottages. Right. Ours had... Uh, so it's thickly furnished. A shower that came out of the ceiling. Yeah, so here's the deal. Let me just tell you, if I and can set the scene place. quickly. Yes. So we go to this place. It's like the last or second last day of the bike ride. It is like right off the highway. And there are these little cabins. It doesn't make any sense. It's totally incongruous. But the main point is, we're done physically. We can barely walk 
to the cabins. We've had it. Long, hot day in the Turns sun. Turns out Oregon has hills. Yeah, right. So, so after five days of this, we sort of crawl to the cabin, and we're sitting there, and Hampson says to me, oh, look at that. They have this thickly furniture right by the fireplace. And if I and I say to Tamsin, if I could only walk to the fireplace, that would be great. And we I don't think we ever got there. I mean, we were dead. We were dead, and we almost had a heart attack when the bath water came from the ceiling. Yes, honestly. we weren't anticipating that. Everyone was sh- you heard Turned shouts. Everyone, the, <laughs> the bath- water comes from the ceiling. It was like a fantasy thing. So we'll come back there without going uh, but, 100 but miles. But that was a lovely place. I mean, yeah. maybe it sounds a little. Um, no, no, you could go, and it's not even expensive. Right. Yeah, I, compared to New York, it was not expensive at anything. all. Yeah. So that was good. And also in Bend, yeah. we um, we went to the Deschutes Brewery, right, which was fun, uh, and you know, pretty uh, funny tour of the uh, brewery itself. And uh, we also we stayed in an eco chic hotel, yes, called the Oxford, I think. All right, and uh, that was Trey Cool. Uh, but, uh, you know, yeah. the five pine was right. The Deschutes the, the Brewery was nice. It's the nitro stout that you get at the Deschutes Brewery. One more thing about know. the uh, five pine. Yeah. The cabins were set in just random fields of wildflowers. Yeah, really? Yes. I didn't notice. Okay, so it, I'm going to take your word for it. I could hardly see. Uh, all right, so we have Granger here for basketball. And Granger got me, alerted me to something. Of course, we're watching the basketball final now between the Toronto Raptors and the Golden State Warriors. Everyone riding uh, the horse that is the Golden State Warriors to probably, everyone says, another big victory. You heard here before that Golden State's guilty of bad karma, and therefore they're going to be challenged going forward. But in any event, they're playing Toronto, and they play the first game. And here's what happens. Number one, Toronto wins. And number two, the star of the game is, Granger? Pascal Siakam. Who no one's ever heard of. And when I mean no one, I mean me. So, Granger, explain to us who Pascal Siakam is and how improbable a story this is. So, Pascal Siakam is a young player for the Toronto Raptors. He's going to be the winner of the most improved player this year in the NBA. He's from Cameroon, where he's the youngest of a basketball-playing family. His three older brothers all played Division One ball, and he was supposed to be the priest of the family. Started studying at the age of 11 at religious school, and when he got to be about 15, he started rebelling, he got himself kicked out of school, and eventually went on a lark to the basketball camp that his brothers go to, where his brothers had gone to and gotten recognized at. His brothers, upon hearing that he was going to the camp, said, Are you kidding? Because they think, This is my little brother. He's terrible at basketball. Right. He's not that athletic, whatever, right. even though he's a tall guy. Uh, he gets recognized at the camp more for his effort and then his skill, but you know, he's a he's a quick guy, he's long, he's tall, he's determined, and um, he gets an offer at an American high school eventually. He's there for a year, goes to New Mexico State, uh, spends a couple of years there, he's freshman of the year in the conference the first year. Then after a year where he gets 20 points a game, goes to the NBA, has some ups and downs in the NBA to start with, and now all of a sudden he's the second best player on a team with a 1-0 lead in the finals. It's crazy. It's a, first of all, he's 25 years old. He's, uh, as Granger mentioned, he's long. He's six foot nine, 230 pounds. 
And in game one, he scored 32 points. He was by far the most effective player on the court in the most effective, most important basketball series in the world. And that's one of the amazing things about the NBA. And I don't think you see this in any other sport. You know, the storylines keep changing. And then you got, you got a guy like this and everybody's going like, who the heck is this guy? And meanwhile, I was watching some news reports in Toronto. It's a very multicultural city. And sure enough, they find the Cameroon neighborhood in Toronto. And guess what? They're excited. So, so they're in the backyard with these guys. They can't even interview these guys. Between the dancing and the music that goes on for 10 minutes, they're going, Pascal, Pascal, Pascal. They never met Pascal, but they're, they're behind him. It's well, a- so he didn't show up. In the earlier against the Bucks and so on. Well, he was there, but he's not a star. No, I know he, he had a tough series against the Bucks. That's a good point. So his first round he did well. Second round not as not as good. His third round not as good. And then this game he had thirty two points and fourteen of seventeen shots, eight rebounds, five assists, two three pointers. Yeah. So so you know, look, he clearly was the story and the difference in the game. Is that going to be every game? No, probably. I don't know. We'll see. But that's what you got to tune in to find out. So we're talking, watching a basketball series that has gone on, and all you hear about are people like Steph Curry and Clay Thompson and Draymond Green and Kevin Durant. And this name doesn't come up until two days ago. And he's from where? And he's 25. Just to give you an idea, he's making $1.5 million. That's a hefty salary, except the, the next guy up on the ladder in terms of salary, in terms of starting team with Toronto, makes $10 million. He's a nobody. He's a nobody. But he's a nobody who's emerging. Not for long. Not for long. Yeah, so it's an amazing story. The things turn like on a dime in the NBA. Maybe he'll continue. It kind of reminds me of when Ginobili became famous during the playoffs years ago. Maybe. You know, reserved, really yeah, well, another guy from a foreign country. You know, in his case, France. You know, it's funny. They did the post-game news conference. Ginobili's and... from Argentina. Oh, Argentina. My mistake. You're it's right. like France. Well, it's but different. I think Tony Parker, his teammate. I was thinking of a specific guy. But so, but here's why I was talking French, too. Because uh, Siakam speaks two languages fluently, English and French because he's Cameroonian, and they do the press conference, and at the end of the press conference, following the other game, he looks up at the crowd, he goes, no questions in French? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So there you go. All right, thank you, Granger. So tune in tonight, NBA, and the rest of the series. Yeah, we want to get Granger out of here because now we're going to talk about burlesque. Yes, it's going to go. Here's the burlesque scandalous, the, the scandalous part of the uh, broadcast. The, the broadcast. Uh, there's always something I find. Well, of course, you know, uh, I I continue to get the BBC History Magazine. Excellent. It's Who, a monthly. How'd magazine. you get that? Who got that I get for it you? About, I get it. Your husband. Oh, I thought it was Santa. No. Um, anyway, I get it a month after everybody else in BBC Land right. reads it, but. Um, Nonetheless, I'm delighted to have it. And there's all kinds of interesting uh, stories in it this month, or well, April, actually. I've got, I'm talking about the April yeah. edition. And uh, the one I go to immediately is basically the history of the origins of burlesque theater. Yeah. Um, now, when we think of burlesque theater, we basically think of, uh, you know, uh, striptease. Right? Uh, women dancing around wearing not much clothing. Oh, if you say but, so. Yes, uh, go ahead. Um, it's not, it wasn't always that way. Right. Okay? When burlesque theater basically are, originates, 
in England, in London, um, kind of mid-19th century. What it is, is, you know, kind of an upper crust uh, theater meant to lampoon uh, things like Shakespeare and opera. Mm -hmm. And of course, girls in a chorus line with bare legs was important, all right? But so was this satirical view of whatever was the popular, you know, opera at the time. And you really wouldn't get all the jokes, all the humor, I think all the puns, really, unless you were familiar with opera. So that's the funny thing about it. Uh, It wasn't just that women were coming out scantily clad, although they were, and uh, many times there were trouser rolls uh, meant to facilitate seeing women's legs. Because, of course, if you're in a long dress, you don't see legs. But if you're playing a man Mm -hmm. and you have, like, tights on Mm -hmm. uh, with a doublet or whatever, uh, you get quite a good view. Uh, So that's kind of fun. And a variety of people worked in burlesque, including your friend and mine, W.S. Gilbert, as in Gilbert and Sullivan, Uh, he actually um, wrote a variety of burlesque pieces, including um, uh, a version of Robert the Devil, uh, Nun Dun, Son of a Gun, uh, which is, I think, based on a Meyerbeer opera, actually. Well, Anyway, I don't know enough about opera to get any enjoyment out of this, but uh, anyway, uh, that was a lot of fun. It starred a famous uh, comic, Nellie Farron, Mm -hmm. who couldn't sing, Mm -hmm. couldn't act, Mm -hmm. but apparently was hilarious and uh, had uh, fantastic legs. Uh, So that must have been uh, quite a riot. Uh, You know, it was all very... Uh, silly, all right? Uh, There was no plot to speak of. It's not like they were satires that really, you know, stayed close to the original Mm -hmm. opera or Shakespeare play they were lampooning. Uh, It it was just pure ridiculousness. Um, But another interesting person that worked in this field was Lucia Elizabeth Vestris. And she starts out as an actress and opera singer and a great success in burlesque, but she ends up managing a theater and being quite the theatrical business person, again, in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was a really fun article and, uh, you know, mentioned all these other, there, were, there was a spoof of La Traviata, and there was a spoof, spoof of Lucretia Borgia, etc. That's where burlesque comes well, from. Well, there's a lot, of, listen, there's a lot of burlesque comics. When burlesque gets to the U.S., all kinds, of, even Phil Silvers we were talking about was a burlesque comic. I mean, it's, there's all kinds of comical stuff in, in burlesque. Yeah, but they were actually singing arias. Yeah, okay. Well, that's it. different. And the arias would be rewritten as you would do in like a camp play yeah, well, that's, or a, you know, a college. You know, uh, that, that's a half step to Gilbert and Sullivan right there, really. I mean, that's right. doggerel. But yeah. Well, yeah. Um, but, you know, closer probably to SNL. Uh, yeah, yeah, than sure. anything else, that version of it. But it always was titillating. It always was meant to show girls hmm. uh, with not 
much clothing on. Right. Uh, so interesting combination gave the sort of upper middle class uh, somewhere to uh, enjoy themselves. Uh, with a slight, you know, it was still kind of a snobbery there. It wasn't quite the music hall crowd. So no one saw so the people didn't see the eye history. roll on it. Yeah. You got to read it. You got to right. read it. Well, I mean, be... I'm going to go on to read the rest of the magazine, which has things about, uh, you know, Henry VIII and and all that. But uh, how much fun to know about the history of burlesque. All right. Uh, yeah, I'm glad I got you that back. Me and Santa. So the. Concern in the hockey championships is that Boston's in the final against St. Louis. Boston's up 2-1, and people are down on Boston. They're unhappy with Boston wins too much. That's what's come up. Cause yeah, Boston, you mentioned that to me the other night, and so we immediately started rooting for St. Louis. Immediately. Boston uh, Red Sox, of course, won the World Series. The Boston uh, Patriots, New England Patriots, won the uh, basketball, uh, basketball, football, NFL uh, championship. And this to keep all these sports straight. You can't. It It is. So the Times ball pointing. Well, the Times did research and decided when was the last time that you had a city that was held a title in three major sports at the same time. The definition is important because in 69, 70, New York actually did win all these. But, you know, you had the Jets and and the Mets and the Knicks. But it didn't work out perfectly in terms of them holding the title at the same time. So it's a very clear New York Times fussy definition. And when did this happen before? And you're asking yourself, you're pouring through Chicago. Who was it? Philadelphia? No. The answer is the 1935 uh, Detroit teams. Detroit, 1935. And it's not as if they didn't notice in Detroit. Detroit uh, did notice. Detroit in 1935 was in a bad way financially. Uh, obviously, it's, uh, you know, car manufacturing which was going great guns until 1929. But when 1929 hit and you had a stock market crash, car manufacturing was down, the economy was bad. But you had the sports teams in Detroit emerging. So you had the Detroit Tigers of baseball, the Detroit Lions of football, and the, and the Detroit Red Wings of hockey all managed to win the championship and hold that championship at the same time. Of those three teams, the least important by far in 1935 was the NFL championship. No one cared very much about that. But it was true. They had that championship with the Lions. But the other two were a big deal. So much so that this did not escape Detroit. And they had a huge banquet in April 1936, as they describe in the Times, limousine chauffeuring parade of stars at the majestic Masonic Temple. They had stars from all three of those teams together to celebrate that Detroit was the site of these three championships. But they had something else, something else that made Detroit even better than Boston. You know what that was? What? They had the best athlete in the world who was on none of those teams. And that was Joe Lewis. Joe Lewis was the heavyweight championship of the world and he was from, guess where? Detroit. So take that, Boston. You're not going to have that. You might have the three championships, but what really set Detroit apart was Joe Lewis. The heavyweight championship of the world was also from Detroit at that time. And that's a record that will never be equaled. So even if Boston Bruins wins, I think we're okay. Well, this reminds me of Spike Lee. Yes. Because uh, there's a story about him in the Metropolitan section where they tell about how various people spend their Sundays. Yes. Usually it's not a celebrity like Spike Lee. Right. Um, But uh, for whatever reason it was, there was a picture of him, I guess, in his office or something. And in the background is a poster for Joe Lewis. Is that right? Yeah. 
And uh, the other funny thing, there was a funny story about him and his wife buying a house uh, in Manhattan. And it's Jasper John's mm-hmm. old house. Right. And, uh, but there was none of, you know, he's the famous artist. Um, and uh, they were, I guess they were hoping it'd be like a little uh, memento of his having been there. And Spike Lee says, no, not a paintbrush, not a drop of paint. But there was a door, uh, a Rauschenberg door, he called it. And the realtor led them to believe that if they bought the house, they'd have a Rauschenberg. Which is Robert Rauschenberg right. and would have yeah. had a painting on the door. Right, who had and, a relationship with but, Jasper Johns. But, and um, they buy the house, door is gone. Even the hinges are gone. So meanwhile, Spikely. they get bad enough they lose the Rauschenberg door. They have no door. Well, I, they probably uh, were uh, able to come up with a door. Uh, but uh, And anyway, at the end of the article, you know, it's basically telling how the person spends their Sunday. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and he's talking about uh, maybe he watches in the evening a movie with his wife. And then she might go on to watch some kind of series she's mm. interested. Him, not so much. But he does say if it's June He's watching the NBA all right, good. championships. All right, we'll have him so on sometime. So you Spike Lee. Yeah. yeah, Pascal Siakam, I'm sure he's all over it. Uh, yeah, listen, Joe Lewis, uh, an iconic sports figure in the way, culturally, cultural, cultural significance that's kind of unmatched, really, in the years since. Uh, but you had uh, something about Donnie Hathaway. Donny Hathaway. Okay, so yeah, so I, I think I've mentioned before that one of my all-time favorite albums and really the soundtrack, I think, uh, of uh, my, possibly my, I guess it was my freshman year at Princeton, uh, was the Donny Hathaway, Roberta Flack album. And uh, so there is currently a production about Donny Hathaway's life. Uh, that uh, is making the rounds. Um, and it, I guess it's called Twisted Melodies. Mm-hmm. And right now it's at, um, it's at the, the Apollo, Apollo Theater. Yeah, in Harlem. It's been a variety of places, in, in Chicago, in Baltimore, and uh, it really is um, starring Kelvin Roston Jr. as Donny Hathaway. And it's telling the story of his life because it was really um, it, it, a very poignant story. Uh, he uh, grows up a musical prodigy, and uh, he uh, actually attends uh, Howard University, uh, majoring in classical mm-hmm. music. He then goes on to uh, uh, produce and uh, perform uh, in a variety of uh, groups, uh, situations, um, etc. And yet, uh, at a certain point, he seems to become uh, kind of disoriented and paranoid uh, and is uh, diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. And by 1979, uh, he, uh, just before a profile about him, appears in Ebony magazine. He's uh, discovered dead on the sidewalk, apparent suicide. Uh, so it's... Uh, well, I mean, look, he also, look, I've read that he was a drug addict, but I think that's, that contributes to all this. I mean, it's all part of the same story. And and he died, I think he was in his late 20s when he died, uh, at most of his early 30s, a really young age. Um, 
And uh, yeah, so we're looking forward to possibly seeing that. I know someone who's seeing it as, this weekend will get a report on that. Uh, but an amazing artist, and uh, that's an amazing album. Uh, and he's kind of a unique talent. I mean, uh, and you know, it's funny. It's not. It's not like he's uh, a household name. Like everybody knows him. So I, I recall sitting around a restaurant, just on a bunch of uh, people we just met, but they're working on a case together. And the restaurant's playing R&B stuff and people are going, oh, I remember that song, That's the Temptations, or That's the Four Tops, or That's the Spinners. And they play a song no one can mention, no one can identify. And I say, oh, well, that's Donny Hathaway. And uh, one or two people have heard of him. Um, it, but an amazing guy. We'll, we'll play something later from Donny Hathaway. Uh, yeah. I mean, the other thing that's interesting about the, then the article in the New York Times mentions that uh, this... Uh, performance tries to address uh, sort of uh, the idea of this combination of music and madness. Yeah. And well, uh, you know, it's kind of a cliche yeah. that, uh, you know, if you suffer from mental illness, uh, it actually gives birth to even greater arts. Um, and, uh, you know, it's not necessarily that. Maybe it's just a fact of well, someone's in his case, life, but you know, it's something you shouldn't ignore that there's no need to ignore or well, it could have been, pedal it or could have, could have been manic creative energy too you hear about that sometimes look well maybe we'll see it it's going to be there for another month it's at the apollo right that, uh, that, that's right, what i recall right and then uh, i think it's actually going down to washington dc oh really so, oh, yeah okay probably arena or someplace like that uh no washington mosaic theater company hmm, okay all right so we just have a couple of obituaries um the first is uh, Curtis Blake, who founded Friendlies. Yes, actually. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, uh, our family has depended greatly on <laughs> Friendlies. Uh, it used to be the tradition for the kids and me to go out for dinner on a Friday night. And many of those Friday nights were spent oh. in a friendly. See, see, see that's know, the difference. Between... Getting the clown Sunday for dessert if one, in fact, had finished one's grilled cheese sandwich and French fries <laughs> completely. Not a insurmountable task by any means. Um, and also, I think the kids will tell you, I think Sadie and Granger will tell you that I broke the news to them of an impending uh, sibling on the way. Oh, really? Uh, at Friendly's one Friday What I remember night. is the story you told me, and the kids have even told me, when you told them we were going to Disney World. Was that at Friendly's or was that someplace else? No, I, I thought the Friendly story was about, uh, you know, we're having a baby. One of the, I think you told them about your dinner with them I, we're so going to Disney World, and I think they broke into tears of joy. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think it's possible yeah. many important family announcements happened at Friendly's. Of course, you know, when I first heard of Friendly's, it was in New England. And he's, it starts out in New England. Right. And Curtis Blake and his older brother had nothing to do one summer. They couldn't find a summer job. So their mom convinces them to start an ice cream business. Really? So they make their own ice cream. Uh, they get a $547 loan from their parents. They buy a few tables and chairs for eight bucks. Uh, and they're charging a nickel. A nickel. For two that scoops. was the key. The Times headline, I know you're reading from the journal, the Times headline said, said they started with nickel ice cream. Uh, and at a time that they didn't have much money, but as they put it, neither did, did anybody else. And so on their first day of business, they actually um, ring up 
$27 yeah. on the cash register. That's a lot of sales at yeah. a nickel. Uh, so, you know, it's not like they, they make a zillion dollars in this little startup. I'm doing the math uh, here. I'll, you know, yeah, keep talking. It, for a long time, right. they're just, uh, their take-home pay, uh, the, the brothers, is like four bucks. That's 627 uh, sales or something like that. <laughs> that's, a lot, that's a lot of work for $27. Yeah. 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 I, I've been in those situations. Yeah. Uh, and the Wall Street Journal notes that it was helpful. It helped that they lived with their parents and had few expenses. But eventually, things get rolling, in fact. Uh, I guess it's in, um, what is it, like uh, 2006 that they sell the business? Yeah, something like um, that. 2000, no, they sell it, they sell it in 1979 yeah. uh, for $164 right. million. Million, right. Okay. And um, they actually, in two, by 2006... There are 500 friendlies uh, all over the country. And, uh, you know, Curtis actually keeps on going. He likes, he likes the lunch. ice cream. Yeah. He likes the yeah. ice cream, right. Yeah. And so uh, they flip a coin at a certain point uh, early on to decide who will become the CEO. Curtis wins, but it's really his older brother who's more business-minded. Right. And Curtis is the friendly guy. Um, and eventually he has a falling out with his brother and so forth, but they get back together. Uh, he and his brother also had another common interest, and that was classic cars. Is that right? Yeah. So here's a cool thing. Curtis bought his first car when he was 11. He bought a Model T mm -hmm. for $2.50. Oh, God. Um, and uh, so uh, he goes on from there. He continued to go to Friendly's, and uh, his favorite flavor was Forbidden Chocolate. Chocolate, right, of course. You know, the quote here, they have the Times from Blake, my mom used to say if, if Prez, that's the brother, owned the business alone, he wouldn't have any employees. But if I owned the business alone, I would give it all away to the employees. Which pretty much is how they split it up. One Takes a had village. the business they and, had and complimentary one... complimentary talents. Was it? Oh, that's right. And there was so much work that the one was awake half the day, the other wasn't. Uh, and they were working all the time. But that's how you well, start. That's like a per perfect partnership. You don't always get that. Yeah. Um... Nickel ice cream. Think about that. Those were the days. Yes. Well, yeah, it was a big deal. That, you know, back in the days in the you know the early seventies, and I would go up to New England to visit Nancy Ferguson, and uh, we could go to Friendlies. Listen, when I was it growing up, exotic. when I was growing up, and even years before, fifteen years, Friendlies was like a, a mythical place. Yeah. My mother, we never went to Friendlies. My mother said, there is a place. There's a place on a hill called Friendlies. Maybe one day we'll go. You know, it was like that kind of thing. So, so who knows? Um, well, your mother has spent time in New England. That's right. Um, and uh, Leon Redbone died. Now, now Leon Redbone, uh, as they say in the Times, idiosyncratic throwback singer who piqued Bob Dylan's interest. Well, that's interesting. We know well, I noticed the obit because the first line is about he passed away in New Hope. Pennsylvania. Right. Bucks County, as the Times puts it. He was in New Hope, 69 years old. So who was Leon Redbone? Is a hard guy to categorize, but you've probably seen him on an advertisement or uh, on an SN, old NS, SNL show or something. Or at least heard him. Yeah, as possibly. As recently as the Elf movie. Well, that's not so recent, unfortunately. But he... Uh. he uh, Played but it's a blues. classic, so people hear it all the time. The, the the version of Baby It's Cold Outside was sung by him and uh, Zoe Deschanel. Yeah, okay. So he showed up, he had a Panama hat all the time, or often he had dark sunglasses, he had a brushed mustache, and he sang in a very deep, 
gravelly voice and a very old-timey sound. This is kind of hard to replicate. I certainly couldn't replicate it. But he was affecting a particular type of music. Uh, as they say in one of the reviews they uh, they quote here, they said, Redbone uh, plays the role of a grinning, grinning almost catatonic folky. <laughs> so. I mean, I think that I think in that obit they describe him as a musician, but also performance artist. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And so, but nobody—he was a great mystery. He wouldn't tell any, give any information about himself because he was creating this persona. Uh, and it turns out that, unlikely as it is, he was born in Cyprus, right? In nineteen forty, Armenian, Armenian descent. Right. His name wasn't Leon Redbone. Actually, his name originally was Dikran Gobalian. Uh, but he would not give any details of his life. And one of the funny things is, as I mentioned Dylan a moment ago, uh, there's an interview with Dylan in which he says, Leon interests me. I've heard he's anywhere from 25 to 60. He's 60 years old. He says, I've been this close, holding his hands about a foot apart, and I can't tell which it is. (laughs) So, uh, you know, and it's sort of a gentle soul. They have a quote that closes the obit. Was Redbone's talking? He says, well, I'm, I'm creating a mood. You can create a mood anywhere you want, with colors, with noise, yelling, and screaming. I myself prefer serenity, calm, peace, and quiet. Uh, so uh, there you go. A uh, certain persona, a certain kind of music. Unique uh, talent. Yeah. Uh, so in any event, we thought we would close uh, with a song from the album that Tamsin mentioned a moment ago. Uh, from the album with Donny Hathaway uh, with Roberta Flack. And the song, uh, on the song, Donny Hathaway sings, Roberta Flack's playing piano. Um, and it's called For All We Know. And, uh, you know, it, you have to decide if you're in the right mood. It is a an astounding, in my mind, song. And a beautiful, gripping song. And we'll just play it for you. You can be your own judge. I agree. All right, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhop. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper, we hope to see you again next week. And BT-Dub, you can hear us on Spotify, you can hear us on YouTube, and, uh, you know, get us on Apple as well. So there are many possibilities. Thanks. Adios. Never meet again. Before you go, make this moment sweet again. We won't say. My heart